Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. It's been a volatile start of the year for the industrials and materials sectors, but strong second quarter earnings from a few key industrial players and optimism for copper around China's reopening are just some of the factors driving positive sentiment around the two sectors. So why should investors be looking at industrials and materials, and how could electrification impact them? We're joined today by two of Fidelity's equity research analysts to discuss what's shaping the industrials and materials landscape. Robert Reynolds and Claire Fleming, equity research analysts, join host Brian Borsakowski today to unpack all of this and more, including how they define a good investable company and how their role supports the portfolio managers and others on the Fidelity Canada investment team. Today's podcast was recorded on April 28th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So uh, maybe just to start, Claire, Bobby, if you could just tell us uh, a little bit about what you cover, the areas that you're focused on, and then we can talk about the trends in the space. Claire, if you want to start. Right. Uh, so right now I'm covering Canadian materials, excluding precious metals for the team. Uh, so within that, there's a pretty broad range of sub-industries that I cover, including some of the copper and diversified miners, steel, forest products, including lumber, as well as packaging and chemicals related companies. Great, Bobby. So I cover Canadian industrials. So that ranges from transportation companies, engineering, aerospace, information services, capital goods. And um, that basically rounds out the, the different areas in the TSX that I'd be looking at. Perfect. So, so um, uh, Bobby, we talked to, and Clara, we, we talked to in the first quarter, now we're in the second. Um, so let's talk about some of the trends you're seeing. What are the things that uh, you've got your eye on? Uh, Bobby, why don't we start with you for industrials? Sure. So one of the measures that investors look at for where the industrial space is going as a leading indicator is the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI. And if it's below 50, that signals that the industrial economy is seeing a retraction. And the latest month's reading was 46. And it's actually been below 50 since November of last year. And so there's certain areas of the industrial economy that are already seeing a slowdown. And that would mostly be residential exposed and consumer goods exposed areas of the economy. For example, we're seeing a freight recession right now because companies and uh, retailers in particular ordered a lot of goods over the last few years to meet elevated consumer demand. And in many cases over-ordered because it was taking longer than usual to bring those goods in because of all the issues you've been reading about in the supply chain. That has been unwinding over the last five or six months and has been a pretty big headwind for a lot of transportation equities. On the flip side, there's been a lot of strength in the non-residential parts of the economy. So that's been driven by stuff like the US stimulus bill. So the Infrastructure and Jobs Act and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. So 
We're seeing a, a lot of investment in manufacturing in North America, and that's been supportive of the earnings of some of the capital goods stocks that I cover, as well as some of the engineering firms. So there's been sort of different directions in the fundamentals, but our job is to sort through that and see what's priced in and what isn't, and what's the second derivative of change on some of those. And so that's sort of what I'm focusing on is what comes next, not necessarily what's happening today, but you need to have a good sense of what's happening today to figure out what's coming next. Too. Uh, Claire, what are you seeing in, in, in materials today? Right. And I think with my sector, it's maybe helpful to start with my framework for looking at opportunities within the group and then touching on some of the themes which Bobby mentioned, as well as a few others that have really been impacting the past relative performance of the group um, since we might have last spoke, as well as impacting more forward outlook across that broad range of subsectors, which I reference. I think when looking at opportunities in the group, often you're looking for either really high quality assets or factors that are creating valuation anomalies across those subsector to find great opportunities um, for the portfolio managers. So when looking at what makes a good asset, even though you're looking at very different types of sub-industries, often you're looking for companies that have relatively lower cost assets, long life for those assets in good jurisdictions, um, with good management teams running them to give you visibility on the longer term cash generation from these commodity businesses. As well, when looking at what's causing valuation anomalies, um, sometimes you'll find at certain points in the cycle, um, different subsectors are priced more attractively, or sometimes there's company specific news flow or a weaker quarter um, or something happening specific in the jurisdiction they're operating in that can create some of those valuation anomalies. Um, since the last time we spoke, um, I think it might have even been November, right, when there was rumors about right. China's reopening and how um, that might look like. Of course, we're a lot further into that process now with a bit more visibility. But I think we've seen that as a key driver for some of the more Chinese-exposed commodities, which I cover, like copper, met coal, some of the um, commodity chemicals that have relatively more exposure to that jurisdiction, um, relative to some of the more North American-exposed commodities, like agriculture, um, or forest products. Um, so that's been a key driver of relative performance, as well as the freight recession, which Bobby referenced, as well as um, the IRA impacting some of the relative volume um, growth outlook across subsectors, as well as access to capital and funding. Maybe the last theme I'll mention as well that I think we'll get into more as we go is just the M&A um, cycle. There's been a lot of news flow related to acquisitions and mergers within the materials industry since we last spoke, and that's creating some more opportunities um, for companies within the subsectors that I cover. Great. Maybe we can pick up on that last point, M&A. Why have you seen activity pick up? And uh, maybe just kind of describe kind of what's going on there. Right. It's definitely been a key theme within the subsector over the past few quarters. And I might respond to your question by starting with why we're seeing this M&A cycle pick up, especially given all the news flow about declining um, sort of equity markets activity in, in some other areas of the market. And then the second part, I'll address more how we're leveraging our resources internally um, to identify opportunities that are arising from these M&A scenarios that are coming up within the sector. Um, I think especially when you look at the copper and diversified mining industry, it's been quite a while since the last M&A cycle. But we have a scenario where after a few years of elevated commodity prices, a lot of potential acquirers have the balance sheet capacity to consider or execute on transactions. Um, and you're also seeing a scenario where even though there's some near-term projects in the pipeline, there haven't been as many new copper or other types of commodity mines started 
in recent years, um, just given, as you can imagine, the challenges with now constructing a new mine, whether that's related to permitting or how inflation impacts the capital costs of that or your visibility on the longer term economics or just raising the capital to start a new mine or having visibility on that political jurisdiction, it's really tough to build new capacity. And I think that's causing a lot of companies to then look at where they could potentially acquire existing mines, support their longer term growth pipeline and outlook. Um, I think this is an area though, where um, given that some companies in Canada have come up as both potential acquirers or targets, it's been great to be able to leverage the depth of the Fidelity team, given that a lot of these Canadian companies are interacting with um, international potential acquirers or operating in international jurisdictions. So there's been a lot of conversations with my colleagues like um, James Richards or Laura Stafford in the London office of Fidelity or Sam Heathersay in Australia to understand what they are hearing in terms of companies that might be more interested in M&A opportunities um, or have the capacity to execute on that. And we've been adding that as a tool, I think, in this scenario analysis internally as an analyst, um, instead of just looking at the standalone company, understanding based on transaction multiples or other metrics, how you can look at the potential um, value of these companies in an M&A scenario if this cycle continues. Great. Bobby, do you see this type of activity also in the companies that you cover? Uh, M&A has definitely been a theme for industrials over the last few years. And quite honestly, for some of these industrial companies, it's a core part of how they add value. So if I look at certain companies in the waste sector or the engineering sector or the information and, and commercial services sector, they've consistently done tuck-in acquisitions for the last decade or two decades. And what's happened over since COVID is some business owners and private owners have had COVID fatigue. Frankly, it's been a lot more challenging to operate your business and that's brought more sellers to market. Cost of capital was low the last few years. A lot of the larger companies that we would follow in Canada have been able to lock in lower financing rates. And so have had the balance sheet firepower to go out and, and do more deals. And so I've seen the pace of M&A accelerate in those sectors or subsectors that traditionally do M&A. Aside from that, there's been more transformational M&A that we've seen in the transportation space, both in trucking and railroads, that has been quite favorable for, for both of the acquirers over the last two or three years. And those are situations that we follow closely. And again, we can leverage our, our global analyst network to get a better or a faster handle on what the target they're acquiring, what they do, what's our outlook for them. And then also in the sort of equipment dealer and auction space, there's been large M&A recently. And again, we've had analysts that already cover the target company, and that's helped us get up to speed quickly on the prospects for what that combined entity could look like. And it's an advantage that we have here. Great. Um, and the question of both of you, and maybe we could move a bit to the energy transition, but I know maybe Claire, we could just start with you just on copper, um, obviously a big part of electrification. How have the demands for that affected, um, you know, the companies that you're covering? There's been a lot of issues around supply and demand and can they meet that demand? Uh, where will supply go? Uh, talk a little bit about kind of what you're seeing here and the impact it's having on, on the sector. When talking about the energy transition and how it impacts my space, I might start with how it's impacting the demand outlook for certain uh, commodities like copper, which you referenced, as well as how it's impacting um, for the capital allocation priorities or outlook um, for other uh, subsectors that I cover, especially in the chemicals 
industry. I think starting with commodity-related demand, of course, um, looking at the implications of electrifying um, the transportation sector and increasing penetration of EVs, as well as the amount of copper or metals required in investments in transmission and distribution infrastructure in the electrical grid or increasing the share of renewables penetration are often two areas that come up um, as longer term drivers of demand. I think anecdotally, just to put some um, rough numbers around the amount of copper that might go into your traditional combustion engine might be closer to 25 kilograms. You'd often need closer to three times that. Uh, roughly going into um, an electric vehicle in total. So as you see a rising share of EV penetration, that is a key driver of increasing copper demand. Um, I think although there's a lot of uncertainty on exactly what that pace of electrification might look like, it does tie into how you think about opportunities or your scenarios within the sector, given that that does help give you more visibility on longer term demand, especially if you go into a recession scenario um, where often you were just focused on what cyclically demand copper could look like, and that um, maybe create a bit more uncertainty in a recession scenario. I think just having that kind of longer term secular trend, giving you a bit more visibility on longer term demand in an industry, um, sort of might help you hold ideas throughout the cycle with a bit more conviction compared to the past. Um, so I think copper as well as um, lithium and some of the nickel exposure within uh, Canadian diversified miners often comes up. Um, when talking about that theme. I think the energy transition and push for lower emissions intensity often comes up as well when you look at capital allocation within um, the chemical sector, whether you're producing certain types of fertilizer, um, like nitrogen that might use natural gas as a feedstock, or certain um, commodity chemicals um, that might be used in a lot of um, traditional end markets like paint um, or certain um, building products that uh, you would use day to day uh, is another area where they're trying to find ways to reduce the emissions intensity of that. Um, so even though it hasn't been as prominent in some of the more recent CapEx projects, as a lot of these companies are looking at their capital allocation priorities sort of mid-decade or towards the end of the decade, they're doing a lot of work on sort of what the potential returns for projects could be if they are finding ways to produce lower emissions intensive forms of nitrogen fertilizer um, or uh, certain commodity chemicals. And I think understanding sort of whether customers are willing to pay premiums for those types of products to offset some of the higher capital intensity requirements is a key um, area that comes up in the capital allocation strategies for those companies. Uh, Bobby, what about you? I mean, I, you know, energy is obviously a big part of your sector. Um, transportation, you know, our, our uh, emitters of, of carbon uh, with you know, trucks and, and the rails have transported oil. Um, how is this transition affecting the what you're seeing in your sector? The energy transition affects almost every industrial company and every company in Canada to varying degrees. There's certainly some winners within industrials from the energy transition. Claire's talking about uh, potentially corporate mining corporations having more conviction to invest through the cycle if there's this long-term supply deficit seen in certain energy transition metals like copper, that helps companies in the industrial space that would sell the, the trucks or the equipment you need to, to mine more of this mineral. And there's companies in Canada, equipment dealers that would sell into copper producing regions as one example. As another example, the engineering firms in Canada there's a, a 
growing practice of environmental services with all of these firms that help both consult other companies on how they're going to meet their greenhouse gas reduction goals, as well as help the mining companies build mines or expand mines through the technical services that they offer. So there's a play there. Um, there's a play in transportation from the fact that certain modes of transportation are more fuel efficient than other modes of transportation. Rail's more fuel efficient than truck, for example. And as companies care more about the greenhouse gas emissions in their supply chain, that can become a, a factor that's weighted more heavily than it's been in the past in terms of when you're deciding how to set your supply chain up. So these are all potential tailwinds to, to think about. There's headwinds as well. If, if you think about longer term, what's the investment needed in oil and gas and companies selling into that space potentially face a, a longer term risk, though prices are healthy near term, so it's not really a consideration. So there's puts and takes, but these are all things that we're thinking about as we invest in industrials. Just um, on the bigger economic picture, I mean, we're starting to see inflation moderate potentially in, in Canada and the U.S. Um, interest rates haven't risen in a couple couple uh, announcements in Canada. How do these sorts of things impact the companies that you're covering? Bobby, you want to start with that? Well, like I said at the beginning, general economic conditions are, are quite important for industrials. They tend to be more cyclical companies. There are pockets of def def more defensive areas that investors can hide out in, in the market and, and tend to. And for example, waste companies or information services companies would be viewed as more traditional defensives within industrials. As economic concerns have mounted, those sectors have become relatively more expensive versus their history. But um, you know, people go there for good reason. There's less variance in the outcomes that you'll get for, for those companies' earnings. And then from a more cyclical standpoint, areas such as capital goods tend to really follow the cycle because they're based on other companies spending on capital and capital tends to be much more volatile than just a, an operating cost exposed industrial. So these are factors that I follow very closely. I talked about residential versus non-residential demand. Residential is being very weak as interest rates level off. And as we've seen actually in Canada, housing prices actually start to pick up. We'll see if that's just because of very low supply or you know, who knows, but these are all things that we, we have to pay attention to and balance that against what's the expectation this price in. Everybody knows that residential is very weak right now. Everybody knows non-residential is very strong. So what's your edge looking out a year or two years about where these things settle out and how much is priced in already? That's really our job as analysts to sort through that. Claire, uh, maybe just a, a little bit of just how, how all of these big, big economic issues that we're talking about on a daily basis impact the coverage that you're, you're doing. I think there's a lot of broad implications by subsector, but I might spend a bit more time on how this might be creating some opportunities across the North American packaging space, just because I think it ties into a lot of the themes that um, you mentioned between inflation um, starting to moderate as well as the freight recession um, that Bobby referenced earlier, as well as um, sort of how M&A is impacting this sector as well, given that the drivers are a bit different from the mining industry, which I spoke about earlier. I think packaging is a fairly broad industry besides making um, sort of just the packaging on the food that you might see at the grocery store. They also do things like make RFID tags. 
um, which are used to manage apparel um, inventory um, better and help to reduce losses from shrinkage. Um, as well, you might see um, packaging companies involved with things like making labels on different goods instead of the entire packaging for them. So they do have sort of broader end markets than some people might initially think about with packaging. I think um, there are opportunities for the space coming from moderating inflation, as I said, M&A, as well as sort of the trends with inventory um, destocking, and that as inflation moderates, these companies were having to pass through a lot higher input costs to their end consumers. And sometimes it was tough to realize all of that pricing. So as we start to see some of these raw materials coming off of their peak levels, um, that helps to give these companies an opportunity to realize maybe a bit better margins than during those periods where um, inflation kept accelerating from the trough levels that we saw during COVID. I think when you look at the impact of the freight recession, it has negatively impacted a lot of near-term volumes from these companies, just because, as I said, if they're making things like the RFID tags that might go into apparel inventories, those new news headlines that you see about the retailer like Walmart or brands like Nike having above average inventories over the past year sort of negatively impacted the near-term volume growth outlook as some of those companies are working through those inventories. But um, the assumption that that might start to ease for beyond the first half of this year could start to improve the organic volume growth outlook in addition to margin. Maybe lastly on M&A, um, I think the drivers are different than the mining cycle, but it's an area where there's still some opportunities for these companies. Um, just given that the period of very low interest rates created a lot of competition for assets in this space from private equity or other types of players who are able to fund acquisitions with debt at really low interest rates. Now that we've started to see interest rates go up and a bit less competition from private equity players, that might create more opportunities for these companies to deploy capital into sort of smaller packaging peers, given that it tends to be a really fragmented industry, and generate synergies or, um, on those acquisitions as they integrate them. So I think between potential for some improving drivers of organic growth in the second half of this year, um, improving margins um, from lower inflation, as well as some of those M&A opportunities, um, it could lead to some opportunities across the North American packaging-related uh, sectors. Great. And and uh, I wonder if just more broadly, I, I spoke to Denise Chisholm yesterday, and she was talking, you know, she had materials as one of her top three sectors. And, and uh, more broadly, why is materials a space right now that investors should consider? Um, what, what are sort of the broader just, you know, investment opportunities here? When looking at the broader material sector, and in, when I interact with portfolio managers, I think um, there can be a lot of different interest in the material sector, just depending on sort of their time horizon for holdings, as well as their view of the economic cycle. But given that there's a range from very sort of defensive packaging related names in this industry to sort of higher beta or um, more cyclical metals and mining's names, um, often you can find very different opportunities um, for portfolio managers within the sector. Um, I think one of the key themes that's been impacting perhaps the optimism um, within the materials sector is just on sort of the pace of the China reopening. As I said earlier, when we were talking in November, it was just rumored, and we're starting to see more um, progress on that. Although it's not linear across all of the different sub-industries, I think that the assumption that there'd be continued infrastructure investment, um, as well as continued um, Stimulus supporting economic growth um, helps to provide maybe a bit more visibility on growth in certain end markets of materials. 
even though there are still concerns, I think, about um, the potential for a recession um, in more Western economies. One of the things I'd just add in to add on to the question about materials is it's been over 10 years since the end of the last commodities super cycle, if you want to call it. And there hasn't been a lot of investment in new supply. So I think a key part of the, the bullish thesis for longer term material sector exposure, but also industrials sector exposure that sells into the materials sector as a customer is there's lack of supply growth and capital discipline amongst companies. You hear that talk about a lot in the oil and gas space. Potentially, there's more investment going in the metals and mining space, but these are very, very long lead time projects. And so the lack of supply growth is probably another factor that supports the bullish medium to long term narrative for the material space. And then just Bobby, the, that, that long term narrative for industrials, um, what, it, what is that? Why should investors consider your, uh, that sector? Well, number one, you can look at the track record of industrials companies in Canada. If you look at the sub-index of industrials versus the TSX, it's outperformed on a 1, 3, 5, 10, and 20-year basis. There's just a lot of high-quality companies in Canada in the industrial space, whether you're talking about railroads, engineering companies, information services, waste. There's quite a few longer-term compounder companies. Um, in in that sector so that's number one number two canada is a resource rich economy we know resources is a it's a commodity so you're subject to the fluctuation of the markets but you're selling the picks and shovels or moving the goods produced by those resources that can be a better place to be from a business quality standpoint so there's natural advantages to being an industrial company in canada and then the third is we do have some global champions in canada if you look at the engineering space if you look at certain aerospace companies we have in this country. They've really shown the ability to grow via acquisition and grow organically very well over time and have aspirations to be potentially the leader in their sector globally and have created a lot of value executing on those aspirations. So it's an important and um, alpha generating sector in the Canadian market. Bobby, you kind of mentioned this, some of these uh, things just now, but but I'm going to ask this question a little differently. It's just what makes for a good company in your space? So the long-term compounders, they all have pricing power for the most part, pricing power for, for different reasons. Um, they have generally good management teams. They have a clear capital allocation policy, whether that be a tuck-in M&A program that makes sense because they add synergies to the M&A or they have a cost of camp capital advantage uh, versus the companies they're acquiring, or they have a clear capital allocation policy towards share buybacks or dividend growth. And because of that pricing power, they are able to continue to grow their payouts to investors. And so you know, we look at the business quality from returns, we look at management quality uh, and market exposure. And so those are some of the factors that go into the, the quality assessment. Great, and Claire, same question to you. What makes for a, a good business? Right, with the material, I think this ties into the framework, which I referenced a little bit uh, earlier on in our discussion today about just what makes a really high quality asset with the materials. I think it's a sector where, because you're producing commodities, you don't often have the pricing power um, that Bobby referenced as a key driver of some of the really good 
companies within industrials, but within the materials, um, you can have a relative um, advantages versus your peers if you have assets that have a really long life um, left in them, have really low costs in terms of what that takes you to produce per unit of the commodity you're producing, whether that's copper, potash, forest products. Um, you're in a jurisdiction uh, that has a stable political environment that gives you visibility on your sort of longer term taxation or royalty, which can impact the um, economics of the assets. And you also have a management team that just gives you visibility on the longer term capital deployment strategy and what they're planning to do with those cash flows that a lot of these companies have been generating during periods of above average um, commodity prices. Um, so I think all of those factors contribute to asset quality. And when you have those high quality assets, they're very difficult to replicate um, just between having the geology or being able to find those deposits for certain commodities or how as we talked about earlier, inflation or permitting challenges make it difficult to um, build new supply. Um, so those high quality assets really give you visibility on longer term returns as a standalone company or create that interest in, um, from potential acquirers in the current environment. So we just have a minute left and I just wanted to quickly ask just about the way that you work with the portfolio managers. We have portfolio managers on, we have analysts on. How does kind of what you're talking about feed into the funds that investors and advisors can buy? Claire. Right, I can start with that. Um, I think um, the foundation of a lot of what we do as analysts is of our written research, which is shared globally um, with the team. And we supplement that with a lot of individual conversations with portfolio managers, which based on their investment style, whether they're sort of higher growth or more value oriented, um, based on their view of the economic cycle, um, it can all impact sort of which companies they might be more interested in within the material sector. I think what's great when looking at a sector like materials as well is that even though I'm covering Canadian listed companies, a lot of these companies have global operations or assets or impacted by the um, demand in global end markets. So being able to interact not just with global portfolio managers, but also the global um, analyst team and get insights um, that are more in depth on demand from certain end markets or what um, my company's competitors or peers might be doing within a certain market is a really helpful input to the research process as well. Um, that helps to add value for the team. Great. Bobby, just a uh, last word there. Anything to add before we before we go? It's been nice to be back in the office because <laughs> now we can walk right next to the next cubicle over and speak to the portfolio manager rather than doing Zoom all the time or talking on the phone. So that's been a nice reintroduction to the process in terms of sharing our ideas, but also learning from their experience. I think it's being in person adds something again. Fantastic. Uh, that was great. Thank you both for being here. We're out of time. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.